This is really my first time uh, at this camp, and I, I've been to other camps, and, you know, again, probably shouldn't compare, okay? So, hard, play hard. And uh, those two things matter. Um, playing hard is so important, and also working hard. Right now, we're going we're gonna to work hard. We're going to go for it. Um, but this camp just so gets that, and uh, it's, it's just uh, an honor to be here, so... Welcome this morning. Uh, yesterday, we looked at uh, the historical context of our New Testament, and I don't know if I threw too much history at you, uh, but sometimes I almost think we forget that as we read our Bible, especially our New Testament, that, that there's this story behind it, this amazing, inspiring story. And it's not just their story. The story continues. This is our story. Uh, and so yesterday we learned that Revelation is written at a time when the forces of empire and emperor dominate every aspect of life. Uh, the Roman Empire wasn't just a military power. It wasn't even just a political or an economic power. Uh, but that Rome was a theology, for lack of a better word. I mean, it was... It was a gospel. It, it, it constructed a gospel uh, that, that proclaimed to the world that our emperor is the world's savior. Our emperor, our empire, is what brings peace, prosperity, order, harmony to the world. And really, I don't think the world ever seen the forces of empire or emperor like it did in the first century uh, through Rome. Uh, if you know 20th century uh, history, uh, especially Germany, Nazi Germany, uh, Adolf Hitler got most of his ideas from the Roman Empire, uh, from the flags to the parades, the marches, all the propaganda. Uh, he was trying to mimic and copy it. Uh, again, Rome wasn't just an idea. It was literally something to behold. It was something that was on display every day in very concrete, concrete terms. Um, from just the amazing buildings that you looked at, uh, the world-class highways uh, that people traveled, uh, the cities where, where, where people lived, just things adorned with, with marble, this amazing architecture, uh, theaters, stadiums, spas. Uh, Rome was all about one thing, glory. And Rome's gospel promised the world just this, glory. And at the center of all of this, Think about this. It wasn't just a president. It wasn't even just a king or a fear. But there's a person, an imperator, an emperor who called himself Lord God, Son of God, Savior of the world, and who demanded that all glory, all honor, all wisdom, all power belong to him. And Christianity, my friends, was born into this. This is the backdrop. And it wasn't just born into this. It flourished. It flourished so much so that in three centuries, the Roman Empire became Christian. Even sociologists look at this and they're like, how'd this happen? And see, this is why when I hear so much doom and gloom today from Christians, I'm like, 
Are you reading your Bible? Do you know church history? Because the church historically thrives in such a setting. And I think as the 21st century becomes more and more like the first century, we should be getting giddy, excited. It doesn't mean that things aren't going to be hard. It doesn't mean that there won't be suffering. I mean, this is why Jesus is writing these letters to these churches uh, who are in the epicenter of this, of this empire, um, who are having to endure a megalomaniac like Domitian, um, a, a, an emperor who sees the threat that Christianity poses to his empire. And here's where you even have to ask yourself this question, why is Christianity a threat? Why is it a threat to Rome? Well, in Rome's mind, it's not because it worships Jesus. In Rome's eyes, it's because of who they don't worship. They do not bow the knee to Caesar. They do not say, Heil Caesar. They do not pay homage to Caesar. And not only do they not worship Caesar, but they boldly declared to the world that there is a different savior than Caesar, a different Lord, a different God, and his name is Jesus. And so these letters that Jesus sends to the church, they are marching orders, they're telling the church who they are, they're telling the church what they must be, what they must be in this world for the sake of the, this world, for the glory of Christ. And so let's turn uh, to another one of these letters that Jesus sends to the church. Revelation chapter 2 is where we are. You're going to notice that I skipped his letter to the church of Smyrna because I don't have enough sessions to hit them all. Uh, so we're going to go down to Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. And if you guys wouldn't mind, um, I, I, I just love for the standing, uh, for the reading of God's word. So uh, let's stand. These are the very words of Jesus. To the angel, or to the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write, these are, the, what, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, and yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. The word there in Greek is martyr, my faithful martyr, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Balaam, who taught Balak to entice, to seduce the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and who committed, in the Greek it's porneia, sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have also, uh, likewise, you also hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, those compromisers. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you. I will fight against them with my sword, the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You may be seated. God, at this time right now, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would just fill our hearts in this time. God, that you would take the words uh, that your Spirit, the Spirit of Christ himself wrote and uh, not just place them in our hearts, but use them to transform our hearts from the inside out. In Jesus' name. 
Okay, so we talked about uh, this province of Asia, uh, where these seven churches are. Um, the province of Asia, before it became Roman, it was the kingdom of Pergamum. And uh, the purple section, you can see the kingdom of Pergamum uh, up there uh, on this map. Uh, the kingdom of Pergamum uh, was very Greek. It was Western. So think about this. Uh, then after uh, Greek history, uh, what follows is, is Roman history. And so in this great empire from the West begins to rise up, promising the world a gospel of peace and prosperity and hope. Pergamum, these Greeks, instead of fighting the Romans, pretty much just said, we're in. <laughs> they literally took the keys of their kingdom and gave them to Rome. And this is all 200 years before Jesus. And this changed world history because Rome at this time is a regional republic, and it really had no intentions of, of expanding further. But just imagine today if, if a kingdom like Russia took the keys of its kingdom and said, here, China, we're in. And, and, and that's kind of the equivalent. And, and so Jesus starts this whole thing off, and he says to the church here, he says, I know where you live. I know where you live. I see you. I, I, I see what you're up against. You, you live where, where Satan has his throne. Now, what's Jesus referring to? Well, Pergamum is the most important city of this region until Ephesus replaces it. I mean, this is the proud city that once ruled the Pergamum Empire. It's prosperous, powerful, prestigious. Uh, the polis, which is the city that you see there on the ground, it's full of all the Greco-Roman amenities, theaters, stadiums, shopping malls, spas. It's, it's grand, it's glorious, beautiful. Uh, Pergamum is also a world center for learning. So if Hef Ephesus becomes the Harvard of that day, uh, Pergamum is the Oxford. It's, it's been around for a while with that kind of reputation. In fact, it boasts the second biggest library of the world at that time. It's the medical capital of the world. In fact, its most famous physician, Galen, uh, resides here. In fact, the big campus uh, at the bottom uh, of this picture, that's called an Asclepion. Uh, that's a hospital. Uh, it's a healing center. Uh, remember, in the ancient worldview, there's a God that's behind absolutely everything. And Asclepius, uh, is the name of the God who is the God of health, the God of healing. Uh, this is why uh, this medical complex is called an Asclepion. Asclepius, this God, whenever uh, he's depicted, it's, it's always with a, a pole in his right hand and a snake wrapped around it. Funny how, you know, we're still Greek these days. All of our culture is, is so much in the West rooted uh, in, in Greece. I mean, it's still the, uh, for the American Medical Association, our symbols, a snake wrapped around the pole. So Pergamum's uh, Asclepius, or Asclepian is really the Mayo Clinic, the ancient world. So people from all over the world are coming to this city to be healed. Starting with Roman emperors, senators, patricians, equestrians, 
generals from the army, high-ranking soldiers, gladiators. If you want to be healed, this is where you come. What were the treatments that they uh, practiced? It was everything from exercise, uh, oils, dream therapy, spa treatment, stress release, entertainment, uh, special washings and, and baths. You know what? This was not a hoax. People are healed. All the healing that took place in that place was credited to this god, Asclepius. In fact, one of the things that archaeologists have found uh, was this huge, huge white stone. And on it were uh, uh, names in Greek, and then the testimonial behind that name. Uh, I, was, I was healed of this. I was healed of that. I was healed of this. And so uh, this white stone just marked, in their mind, uh, the, the power of this god, Asclepius, to heal. Do you see how Satan works? He's always, always creating counterfeits. Listen to what Paul, how he starts his letter in Romans. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to God, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they actually became fools because they exchanged the glory of the eternal God for images to make made to look like a mortal human being, even birds and animals and reptiles. Go up uh, to the next uh, slide, to the Acropolis. Uh, Acropolis is uh, Acro's hill, Polis is city, it's the city on the hill, and this is where Greeks and Romans put all their most important buildings. So you can see a theater there, and next to that theater is a temple to Dionysius. Uh, Dionysius is the Greek name of this god. Bacchus is the Roman name of this god. Um, it's the god of the theater. It's the god of wine. Um, but I call this god uh, the college fraternity god um, because that's really how this god functioned. Um, it, this, the worship of this god uh, would get so out of control that even... Roman emperors outlawed it because to become in the spirit of this God was to become totally intoxicated. And to become one with this God was by having sex with a stranger. In fact, in Roman society, uh, it was the the Roman housewives uh, who were the ones that actually had so many rules to follow uh, in subservience to their husbands, uh, this became a popular god for these Roman housewives to just get outside of that and to go wild and to go crazy. Is this why Jesus is saying, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne? You know, Dionysius is alive and well today. So many still think that they can find life in drunkenness and lust and hooking up, and yet all the while it's so destructive. Now going to the right of the theater, what you see there is an altar to Zeus, which is today in the Berlin, Berlin Museum. Uh, Zeus is 
the king God, God in the Roman pantheon. Uh, he's called the Lord and creator of all things. And so people now would come to Pergamum from all over the world uh, to, to worship Zeus, uh, to offer sacrifices, 24-7, 365. Uh, it, 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 it was all day, every day uh, throughout the year. And the smells of these uh, sacrifices uh, to this chief god just permeated throughout the city. In fact, look at that altar. Does it look like a throne? Who sits on the throne? Is it Satan? Is it Jesus? You know, when you live in a city like Pergamum, you have this in your face every single day. But the highest temple at the time uh, Jesus writes this, it's perched above all temples, is actually a temple to Caesar. In fact, Pergamum is the first uh, city to build a temple to Caesar. They're the first to worship uh, Caesar as Lord and God. And so because of this, Rome's first emperor, Caesar Augustus, grants Pergamum the status, the high status of being the world center uh, for the worship of Caesar. And this is the status that they will have until Domitian switches it to Ephesus. So when Jesus uh, says these words to this church that is in this city, I know where you live, I, where Satan has his throne. In my opinion, I think Jesus is, is, is referring to all of what I've just mentioned, but I think he's especially referencing uh, the worship of Caesar that's going on and the worship that it demands. Because when you go deeper into the book of Revelation, John is going to describe two beasts. Uh, he's going to describe a beast from the land, and then he's going to describe a beast uh, from, from the sea. Uh, really, these are just political cartoons. That's how you have to see how John is making use of this imagery. Uh, they're memes. So the beast from the land is, is the emperor. Uh, the beast from the sea is Rome's propaganda machine that indoctrinates the empire into the emperor's lordship. That's a one-two punch. And you look at all of this and you say, our battle is against flesh and blood. And Christians today are doing the same thing. We, we, we look at our contacts and we conclude our battle is against flesh and blood. Ah, but then John keeps going and in Revelation 13, he introduces us to the dragon. And who's the dragon? The dragon is the one who's behind the two beasts. And the dragon goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And behind all the flesh and blood that we are against, there is always a dragon that is behind it. And this axis of evil, this trinity of evil, of two beasts and a dragon, are, are, are what are coming up against these Christians. Being a, imagine being a Christian in Pergamum. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine every day, like passing these buildings, passing these temples, looking up and, 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 and seeing that, that temple to Caesar just casting this shadow upon the place that you live. And you're not just part of a community. 
that doesn't just vote for Caesar, but you are part of a community that worships Caesar as Lord and God. And people are looking at you and they're saying, why aren't you saying, hail Caesar? Why aren't you going to the temple? And this is why Jesus has such great encouragement to this church. Uh, look at verse 13. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You remain true to my name. <laughs> and you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days uh, of, that, of that crisis of Antipas, my faithful witness who is put to death in your city where Satan lives. He says, I know all this. I, I know what you're up against. I see what's happening. I see what happened to Antipas. Antipas is probably a victim of local persecution by a local government. And the reason I think this is because Rome did not allow for any local government to exercise capital punishment. But when Pergamum handed over the keys of their kingdom to Rome, Rome granted them this privilege, the right of the sword, that they could execute capital punishment. And it's not hard for us to understand uh, why the locals of this city would, would, would hate Christians. I mean, this is a city that was the first to worship Caesar. It, it prides itself on its allegiance to Caesar. And now you have these Christians whose allegiance is totally to this Christ who calls himself the Savior of the world. And that's why I love these words that Jesus says to them. You held fast to my name. You did not deny the faith. Could Jesus say that of us today? And I love how Jesus speaks about himself. He says, I'm the one who holds the sharp double-edged sword. You know, Pergamum might have been given the right to the sword, but Jesus says, look at my sword. And then later in verse 16, still Staying with this theme, Jesus says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with my sword, the sword of my mouth. You know, this is where my heart asks this important question What sword do I fear? Do I fear Caesar's sword? Do I feel, fear the sword of Christ? Now look at Jesus' critique. It's in verses 14 and 15. And there's some pretty serious stuff that he lays on the table here. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who once taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Hmm. What's Balaam? Well, Balaam is what Jews to this day call false teaching. Whenever they see false teaching, Balaam. They call it Balaam. They label it Balaam. And so then you ask, well, what's the false teaching that's going on, again, in the church? Um, and it's this permissive attitude 
uh, on matters of eating food offered to idols, which I'll talk about more tonight, which actually has a lot, in, a lot of relevance for us today. Um, but the one I'm going to hit right now, they had a permissive attitude towards porneia, towards sexual immorality. And this is what Jesus is calling Balaam. And to label uh, something Balaam is just hugely condemning. It's all rooted in the biblical story, if you know it. It's in Numbers 22 through 25. It's when Israel's coming out of the desert uh, as this growing nation, and the nations around them see this, and they're threatened by it. And so the king of one of these nations, the king of Moab, Balak, uh, hires this prophet Balaam to pronounce a curse on this upstart nation. And so Balaam goes uh, to this high mountain and he looks down on this upstart nation and every time he opens his mouth to curse them, all that comes out of his mouth is blessings. So then when plan A doesn't work, uh, they resort to plan B and they say, hey, let's seduce them. Let's seduce them. Let's entice them to worship our gods. So when they worship our gods, they'll just become like us. And so what do they do? They send uh, their women into Israel's camp to invite the Israel Israelite men over for what we might call visits. Um, in fact, I don't know if you know this, but so much of the pagan worship was essentially sexual immorality. Uh, the priests and the priestesses of Baals and the Asherahs um, are essentially prostitutes. Uh, the, the festivals uh, to these gods were orgy in nature. People would gorge on food, they'd binge on drink, and then they'd indulge in sex. Um, and I think the ancients understood something that maybe modern people today are ignorant of. That sex is more than sex. That there's a spiritual force and a power behind sex. And if you look at our culture today, uh, it, it, it treats sex almost like a pastime, like golf, tennis, uh, when in reality, it's one of the most powerful forces on earth. I mean, sex isn't just a pastime. I mean, I think it falls in the category of crack cocaine because there's, there's, there's massive uh, power behind it. It's, it's a power that can actually destroy people by seducing them. It can spin this nasty web where people are caught, where be, people just become powerless, helpless addicts. So therefore, I, I think the king of Moab here, of Balak, is, is actually right. Like, if I can't take them out militarily, uh, I can wipe them out morally and spiritually. I'll, I, we'll just take them out by seducing them. But listen, this isn't just a king's strategy. The battle's not against just flesh and blood. This is Satan's strategy. That we'd be swept away by this tsunami of sexual immorality. Really, nothing has changed. You just look at our world. I don't have to even tell you sex on campus, sex in the marketplace, sex on TV, internet, sex in politics, sex in sports. It's wiping us out. It's destroying marriages. It's destroying families. It's destroying self-worth, identities of millions, let alone all the rape, the abuse, the exploitation. See, one thing I, I, I think that Christians forget is, is that the ancient world had no sexual ethic. 
This isn't wrong to them. The gods they worship are a soap opera themselves, uh, having sex with each other, and therefore the worship of this God, of these gods is often through sex. God's people in the Old Testament and New Testament are the ones who first introduced the world to a sexual ethic, to a sexual right and wrong. And I think we as Christians forget this. And think about what God's word teaches us about sex. I mean, the creation of the world ends with sex. Because God created sex. He created us for sex. Sex is all part of God's good creation, part of his master plan. And you read it and you, and you see that God placed sex within a very specific context. And that context is within a covenant between a man and a woman that we call marriage. And that God gives it a specific purpose. And the highest purpose that God gives it is that of family. And yet today we have sex without marriage. We have kids without marriage. And we have cheapened marriage to mean whatever we want it to mean. And we've treated sex with such irreverence. And we know who the biggest victims are, our children. I mean, how are children going to be brought up and nurtured and sent out without healthy marriages and healthy families? And what went hand in hand with all these ancient sex practices were things like infanticide, unwanted babies left to die on garbage heaps. Still the case today. Even children exploited as sex, sex objects. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, when you remove a wall, you better first ask why that wall was put there in the first place. And what we're experiencing today, age-old walls are being removed, and no one's asking why. We've yoked ourselves to this bale. And I'll tell you what, we are in danger of destroying ourselves and everything that's good. Our sexual ethic today is suicidal. In church, do I dare ask, are we different? Is our view of sex different than the world around us? When it comes to premarital sex, when it comes to adultery, or when it comes even to the secret sins like pornography, See, when Christians become just like the world around them, when we live like the world, when we adopt the, adopt the world's ways, its sexual ethic and lifestyle, Jesus says, that's Balaam. And it's a very loving thing then for Jesus to condemn this because Balaam will wipe us out. I mean, from the very beginning, when God chooses a people to partner with him, to redeem a world that he loves, his first calling on this people is to be like me, to be holy as I am holy, to not be like the world, but to be distinct from the world, to bear God's image, to reflect that image into the world. This is our mission. And the moment we lose our distinctiveness is when 
God has nothing to use. The prophet Hosea, writing about this, this issue with Balaam and Balak, says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. But when they, be, but when they came to Baal, they consecrated consecrated themselves to that shameful idol, and they became as vile as that idol that they loved. Wow. I got a quote here from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. And what's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around you. So those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers, rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preference, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it, treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and those whose lives they touch. There's a lot at stake. If you know the Balaam story, this thing gets so out of control. Before you know it, the Israelite men are inviting the women to their tents. In fact, one Israelite man gets so comfortable that he goes into the tent And there, in God's tent, in God's house, his sanctuary, is copulating with a woman. And a man named Phineas can take this no longer when he sees this. He takes his sword and he thrusts it into both of them. And God, in that moment, he speaks. He says about Phineas, here is a man after my own heart who has my kana, my passion, my jealousy, my zeal. In fact, this is what God says about himself when he says to Israel, have no other gods before you, for I am kana. I am a jealous God. I am a passionate God. And listen, God loves what Phineas did, not because God likes fanaticism. This action was not fanatical. It was priestly. Phineas is passionate about guarding and preserving God's sanctuary, the place where God's honor and presence dwells. Think about what it says about Jesus. Zeal for God's house will consume him. You could say that about Phineas. Which is why God then makes an eternal covenant with Phineas. He says, you and your sons will be my priests forever. The kind of person that I want guarding my sanctuary are people like you. Now, just think about this. Fast forward into the story post-Pentecost. We, the church today, are God's sanctuary. And this is why Jesus says in his letter to this church, there can be no Balaam here. 
No compromise, no trying to accommodate to the world around us. This is why in verse 16, Jesus says, repent, or I'll come to you with my sword. I'll come like Phineas, and he will come with his sword. It's not because he's some jealous, like overprotective boyfriend. This is a marriage. We're on a marriage. God is our husband. His love for us is jealous. And if you know the story right before Balaam, this is when this whole epidemic breaks out and people are are dying because of snake bites. and, And God says, I see that. Moses, take a snake, wrap it around a pole, and lift it up. And when people who've been poisoned look at that pole, they will be healed. Jesus, when he came to the world, he points to this story. He tells Nicodemus, that snake pinned to that pole that brought healing, And what is the snake? The snake is cursed. Like, what's God doing? Causing his people to look at a a cursed animal on a pole. So Jesus could say, I'm going to become that snake because I'm lifted up and all the curse falls on me like that snake on a pole. All the curse of sin, when people come and they look at it, be healed. We know Jesus' next words, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave us his only son. He took upon himself the curse that we could look at him and be healed. Why would God do this? Because he is a lover. He is ravished with us. He is a passionate husband with sword in hand or a cursed snake who dies in our place. He is jealous for us. No one is jealous for us like Christ. Remember that white stone that I read about of Asclepius? Where you wrote your name, and then the healing that you received from this God? Well, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. What Jesus is saying is, Asclepius is not the healer. I am the true healer. And when you put your trust in me, so complete is your healing that it gives us a new name. And name is a new you. It's a new life. It's a new identity. It's a new purpose. Has he given you a new name? Because when we get this new name, the New Testament now tells us that we are God's house. We are his sanctuary. We are the new garden of God. Our bodies literally are sanctuaries. Are we Phineas? Are we men and women who guard that sanctuary? That's why Paul in Colossians 3 says, put to death all sexual immorality. We need to get the sword out. 
and kill all the illicit loves in our lives and hearts. And how do we put things to death? Let me end with this. Of course, we're gonna pluck things out. We're gonna uproot. We're gonna throw things away. We're gonna dig holes and bury things. This is far more than willpower. It's far more than something we can perform in and of ourselves. The way that our heart is really changed. The thing that causes me to repent is knowing that God is jealous for me. He's ravished. When I look at him, and like that snake on a pole, Christ pinned to that cross. And he loves us that much. And we know that love. Not just up here, but here, we're healed. Look at him. Jesus, we look at you. We see who you are. We see what you've done for us. We see how much you love us and how you love us. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit take that thought and bury it deep in our hearts. And that we'd know the love of God that's in Jesus Christ, a love that Paul said is deeper and wider and far and higher than any ocean. The love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And God, may that love just heal all of us, Lord, from the things that we need healing of so we could be your people in your world, seeking your kingdom, loving your king, and giving our lives to him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.